0: The world has changed a lot over the last several years, and there's many industries that have been adversely and negatively affected by that. And the career outlook in those industries has been tarnished or damaged maybe for years to come, which has put a lot of people in a pinch and looking for the possibility of a pivot. We've put an increasing amount of focus on unlocking the power of certificate programs, which enable us to quickly pivot into a new career in a very cost-effective manner, unlocking fantastic income potential and remote work flexibility. For those of you that are maybe for the first time considering making a similar transition, let me encourage you to check out Salesforce as a potential option. It's hard to overstate how amazing the growth potential in this particular industry is and how amazing the starting salary is even for people that are literally working their first job in this role with no prior experience for more information to find out what it is, what it would actually entail and whether it might be right for you. Just go to com slash career. That's choosify.com slash career. So I listened to this fantastic episode with Paula Pant and Susie Orman last week. And after I finished picking my jaw up off the floor, I thought to myself, this is an episode that desperately needs a response. Thankfully, we have a wonderful community and I'm fortunate enough to be friends with JL Collins from the Simple Path to Wealth, who some people have called the godfather of finance and man, if last week we had the money matriarch of the personal finance world, And today we could feature the godfather of FI. That would be a conversation worth having. So I reached out to Jim and I said, Jim, I'm curious, have you heard of the Fire movement?
1: Well, Jonathan, I am a cranky old geezer a couple of years shy of 70. And I've got more experience than all of you whippersnappers put together out there. So I'm gonna tell you what's what. Yeah, I've heard of the FI movement. And let me tell you straight out, I love it, love it, love it. And let me tell you why.
0: Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup.
1: You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online.
0: guys. There are so many reasons that I'm excited to do this episode today. I think you probably already have a sense of what is coming. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, I had a, uh, a funny little frugal win of the week that I thought I'd pass along. This was kind of one of those instances where being in the phi long-term mindset actually really helped me we got this amazing introductory rate for like our garbage pickup. I've heard friends who are constantly switching between different companies because there are probably 10 different companies that come through my neighborhood. But a couple of years back, we got this great deal for, I think it was like $11 a month. It was some absurdly low fee like that. And I prepaid for a couple of years back then. And I assumed that it would just kind of revert back to the old rate when it came up for renewal, but I just got it recently. And lo and behold, I was able to renew it that $11. So what I did was I locked it in for like four more years. Wow. So yeah, it was great. I just, I prepaid for four more years. I would have done basically as many as they let me. So, <laughs> um, it was, it was kind of hilarious. I, I don't think anybody's ever asked them that question before but yeah, I prepaid. I mean, unless something calamitous befalls us, we're going to live in this house for many, many more years than four. So I feel very comfortable doing that. Obviously the risk is pretty low here since they're only talking 11 bucks a month, but yeah, it was just kind of a neat little win, you know, but do you have flood insurance? No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) All right, we'll get to that. I have a frugal win of the week as well. My cell phone, if you remember, I've been kind of frustrated with it because at this point, the battery only lasts about four hours. It seems like things have kind of started to slow down around that. Although I do not have an Apple, you know, there was this kind of scandal of planned obsolescence when it came to older batteries in the Apple ecosystem. I feel like maybe there's some small spillover into my phone. And I was contemplating purchasing a new one. But I decided to look into just merely getting the battery replaced. Now, in these phones, this is not as simple as just buying a new battery. I mean, you need to have very special tools to open them up and place them in there. And I knew that if I tried to do that, I would just break something. It was just too much of a learning curve. And so I went online and I found one of these like screen replacement stores that you see everywhere. And just asked him if they could replace a battery. And I happen to have a Nexus 6P. It's probably about three years old at this point. They don't make it anymore. But there's obviously plenty of parts still out there that you can purchase. He said yes. He quoted me $80 to uh, replace the battery. Which, you know, I was fine with. Because I was, this is compare and contrast to, I don't know, $300 for a newer phone. If I were just going to go buy another one on the lower end. All the way up to the Pixel, which is their new flagship. If you have Project Fi, which is Google's phone service, being around $800. So I was like, 80, yeah, I can do that. No problem. He actually did end up replacing it for me and his build price at the end of it, for whatever reason, only came to $47. And Brad, my phone now lasts for, again, upwards of 24 hours. I mean, it's, it's insane. The performance is back. It's like a brand new phone. And yeah, I don't wanna get rid of it. I'm not one of these people that just feels that obligatory calling to replace my phone every 12 months. It's just, I'm very, very happy. As long as this phone works, let's just keep using this one.
2: Well, that is a nice win and I can contrast it with my fail in that regard. Cause as you know, my phone was terrible. The battery lasted maybe six hours if I was lucky and I constantly had to recharge it and I didn't even contemplate, honestly, looking into getting a new battery. I just assumed, Oh, this thing's old. It's junky. I mean, I've had my phone for many, many years, so it certainly, I got my value from it, but probably could have extended it for in your case, like 47 bucks.
0: Don't worry, young Padawan. One day you will be as good at this spy thing as I am.
2: (laughs) 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 Thank you for your many teachings. They call (laughs) me Mr. Miyagi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. This past week's episode on Monday, talking about phones, right? I mean, this was an episode on the technological warfare that is being applied to our lives. And it was more than that. It was a broader look at looking at things that have taken an outplaced role in our lives and determining whether or not that that role really does have value or whether or not we should put it inside of a box and reclaim parts of our life. This was about drift.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode with Dominic and he asked some really fundamental questions. How in command of your life are you really? And then he was saying, like, if someone asked him where to start, he looks for these points in his life where he Advises people to look for these points where you're resentful or obligated or constantly doing things you don't want to do, and then just take an inventory of those pain points. And then, at the end of that time, and don't really go through it at that point, just just jot them down. What are those pain points in your life? At the end, what is the one that's the most emotionally charged on that list? What hits you the most? Find that thing or maybe a couple couple things on a short list and try to really dive into them. You know, this is one of those things that I, I find myself increasingly applying to
0: every aspect. And there were probably three different points that he made that to me was like, this is life changing if you take ownership of it. The biggest one was looking for those little things that you're doing that you don't even realizing like you're doing and asking, does that add value? So how many times do I check my phone a day? How many times do I check my email? Do I check my Facebook? Do I check social media? How many times do I check a stat It's not that none of that needs to happen or that I need to have a band, but when it starts seeping into every single aspect of my life, it becomes a problem. And just to put it back again inside of that box, that was big. And then the other one for me, there were actually two other points, but the, the one that I'll talk about real quick was this idea of solving this. One of the best things that you can do to combat drift is to look at where your pain points are, look at where your, your weak spots in terms of where you just let time bleed. And, and usually for most people, it's the first hour of the day and the last hour of the day. I think for me, I have the luxury of it being the first two hours in the last two hours of the day, right? And so being very, very strong on either end of your day allows you to go into the next day with a lot of intention. And so I think for me, one of the things I've said is let me take a hard stand on just one end of that. Let me take a hard stand on that last hour of the day and let me get out my planner and use my planner to map out the next day. And just enjoy that as an intentional time, as opposed to drifting from one Netflix show into the morning where you're just doing social media.
2: Well, so Jonathan, I've I've never heard of this actually in your own life. You actually sit down with a planner and do you jot down like a couple of major things you want to do the next day? Do you I guess, like a portion out your time, according to some schedule, talk me through, like, what does this look like on a real level?
0: Yeah. I need to make it into a PDF sheet, uh, or a journal or something along those lines. I'm sure there are already other ones out there, but basically what I look at is what are the three things that if I did tomorrow, I would be very excited with myself about, you know, if I, if I could hold myself to this line. So it's kind of like these primary and these secondary goals, you're absolutely going to knock out the primary goals. And then if you can, you'll knock out the secondary. So some of those secondary goals may be things like, hey, I want to exercise or, hey, I want to I want to make sure that I'm drinking plenty of water or that I want to make sure I consume this specific meal. You know, it could be health related, but the primary goals are things that, you know, move the needle. It's spending quality time with my son. It's having some dialogue with my wife. It's working on a very specific task that I know I need to get done for work, whatever that is, but just slowly mapping out a few things. You know, I'm not one of I'm not at the point where I'm going to have every single activity mapped out every single hour, every single 30 minute section. I know people that are there. I feel like maybe this is something that could grow to that. But I just know that myself, I bleed the first hour of the day and the last hour of the day. I'm guilty of that drift state. And this is just a a short tool. You don't need to document this for perpetuity. This could be something that you throw away after you're done with it. But it's just to help force you to say, I'm going to get these three things done tomorrow.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. I've never done that, but yeah, something certainly to consider. Like I said, in the episode, I look back at a day and just wonder like, what did I really do? Even though I was pretty busy and I suspect there were some important things, but without having that intention from the outset, I think it just, that would change the game. So yeah, that's pretty cool for me. Like you said, the other bookend is the morning. So I've I've struggled with just lying in bed and listening to podcasts under this odd guys that that that's productive and i don't really think it is all that much i mean a lot of the podcasts i listen to are value added clearly so like i think i can at least make the argument somewhat but for me it's more of a crutch where i still want to listen to podcasts obviously but i think i'd rather listen to them during a different time so i think that was like my big takeaway which is don't turn the phone on even if it's in airplane mode Don't turn the phone on right when I wake up and start listening to podcasts, get out of bed and stretch or exercise, or just go downstairs and get a glass of water, get out of that little zone that I'm in, which again is just reach down onto the floor, grab my phone and turn on a podcast. That's my default state. So I think it's more just having that space between stimulus and response. That's what I want to do because that's what I've been doing. That's habitual for me. How can I break that up? So it's kind of like a baby step type thing for me, Jonathan. Yeah.
0: And and for me, I I follow uh, Jocko Willink on uh, Twitter. And uh, (laughs) it's always like every single morning at 430, I, I, I get this tweet showing that he's taking a picture of his watch. And I'm like, yeah, another day where I'm not doing that. But like I've tackled the night because trying to face the morning frightens me a little bit. Like I just feel like I'm not strong enough to handle that end of it. So it's like, all right, let me own this.
2: And then I can graduate to tackling a morning routine afterwards. Yeah. And one thing that I definitely took to heart from the episode was turning off all notifications on your phone. I think this is something I i probably did it before we recorded the episode in fairness, but I, I, I've been doing it for a couple of months now and it's just really changed the game. Adding that little bit of extra friction to having to unlock your phone and going into Gmail or going into I don't know, whatever else, Facebook to get those notifications, like as opposed to them just popping up. And as Dom's saying, your body floods with that cortisol, that stress hormone when a notification shows up and you just need to check it. There's this pressing, ultimate desire to go check that phone. That's what happens when a notification comes up. Dom said, I'm up against a pretty big force here. There's a thousand of the best designers who are trying to hijack your attention. And Also with this variable rewards, you don't know when this payoff is going to occur. You don't know when a notification is going to come, but man, does it feel good when it shows up? So what do you do to combat that? You just shut them off. I know it took me five minutes on my Android phone to go into settings and notifications and just go into the couple apps that I get notifications from and just shut them off. And what I've done, I think similar to Dom is I've left, maybe, I think I've left two so any phone calls, very few people have my cell phone number, any phone calls come through and text messages. So I'm pretty much assured that if I'm getting either a text or a phone call, it's likely from someone important or at least enough that when I do check my phone, it's worth spending that attention. So that's kind of the line that I've drawn, but I think it's perfectly plausible even for me to shut off text messages. I'm, I'm contemplating that. So, uh, yeah, Jonathan, have you shut off notifications at all?
0: Well, I was actually going to probe you a little bit further on this. So I I have shut off. So I don't get Facebook notifications. I still get email notifications. Do you not get email notifications? I do not. Okay. I haven't done that. I could see how that could be useful. Yeah. I think across the board, I don't know if I've done it systemically or just kind of organically, but yeah, I don't get a ton of notifications on my phone. When he was talking about that lottery mentality, that variable reward that really resonated with me. It's like you open up your phone. You just wonder if something's going to be there waiting for you. And in fact, I even remember interviewing him, questioning him. And where it's a phone interview, it's not a video interview. And I remember probably even during that interview at some point, that phantom feeling where I was checking my phone to see if something had come through. And the irony of that did not escape me. I mean, it was just, it was truly, wow. Even right now, it's so ingrained. You don't even realizing that you're doing it and it kind of feels like you're separating a part of your body. And that's why I love, and maybe you can uh, unpack this a little bit more, but he actually did a detox from all technology and he uses that throughout his life in different aspects of his life. So he's done this. If the phone is really important to him, he's done it with the phone. He's done it with different types of TV. He's done it with different forms of social media. Like, he, you know, he kind of looks at his life and says, is something taking an outplace role in my life? And is that adding value? If not, a detox is a very good way to go about reclaiming that.
2: That's interesting. And he was describing... Corey Mascara, who we had on in episode 61, who does digital detoxes. And this was someone who did a six-month silent meditation in Burma, who obviously can focus. He's had that period of time, but he still is susceptible to it. So if Corey is susceptible to it, we all are, obviously. So I think there's value in trying to take some type of digital detox to prove to yourself that you can do this, to see what your body and your brain feel like when you essentially shut off this drug, it's not hyperbole to call it a drug. So I think we need to take real significant and evasive action to figure out what are these phones doing to us? They're marvelous tools. I couldn't live without mine. I'm sure everyone listening to this, it feels the same to some degree, but they do have a tendency to take over our lives. And we're fighting companies with billions of dollars and tens of thousands of ultra intelligent men and women who are creating these notifications and creating these devices to get our attention. Right. So you have to fight back in some way. And I think a digital detox and certainly the much less invasive approach of shutting off these notifications. I think, I think that really will help you. Dude,
0: we're about to go to Chautauqua
2: for a uh, seven day period. Should we use that as a challenge to do a digital detox? Oh, yeah, I thought about that. I thought about what what happens if they don't have Wi-Fi there or if we just don't sign in, that would be really pretty interesting. Now, your family's not going to be with you, so you will have to carve some time out to get outside
0: of that. But for the rest of it, I might take that on as a personal challenge just to see if I can go an entire week without checking in at all. <laughs> it feels so scary to even <laughs> say that. Like, That's when you know you have a problem. <laughs> all Man, right.
2: I would be incredibly <laughs> impressed if you could do that.
0: You know, let me tell you about one thing I have done and just to show you baby steps here. So talk about morning routine. My family, almost seven days out of the week, there may be a couple days that we've missed because of some scheduling we have, but we right around 730 a.m. in the morning, we take a family walk. So me and my wife and my son and we go, it's about a mile, mile and a half. It is probably one of the highlights of our day. In fact, it sets the tone for the entire day. And one thing that I have taken to doing is I just leave my phone at home for that very specific period of time. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal. Like, oh, well, yeah, of course, duh. It it, kind of is. And let me tell you something that when you're spending quality time with someone and you have your phone out for a second, in my specific relationship, that quality time no longer counts. Like, it it just doesn't. Oh, well, he checked his phone, you know? So as, and I'm not saying that my wife actually verbalizes this. I just can read her and I can read that assessing whether or not I'm being present or whether or not I'm just, responding to her so I can immediately get back to something else that's going on. And it's powerful when you just say my family is a priority. The people that I'm spending the time with are a priority. It's not in between a notification. I'm with, you No, I'm with you. If that's profound in these tiny micro doses, about an hour a day, then how profound is it when you were to apply that for a solid week? What would that actually mean for your life if you were to do that for a one week period of time? And if you feel like you can't do that, what does that say about you?
2: Mm. All right. Well, I would love to see you take this on. I think, like you said, unfortunately, I can't do it fully since I do need to be in touch with my family. But uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can. So who knows, maybe a 24 hour fast, if you will, or detox. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And maybe stringing a couple of those together throughout the week I can take on. And yeah, I'd be impressed if you undertook something like this as well.
0: I think I'm going to, I think the challenge, the gauntlet has been thrown down and I accept we're going right. to, we're going to try and make it happen. We'll report back and see what the benefits are at the uh, end of October when we're back to recording. All right, guys, we've been teeing this up. Some of you were like, I have to listen to this episode specifically for this response. And some of you took the opportunity to email us. We got about four requests for a response. So without further ado, here is Jim Collins from JL Collins NH, the author of the simple path to wealth who in the FI community we have coined as the godfather of FI. Jim, welcome to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys.
0: So I'm quite aware that at this point you have gotten a chance to listen to the now infamous Susie Orman on the Afford Anything podcast. What do you think?
1: I have listened to it. In fact, I I listened to it right away. And uh, what I think is that Paula Pant was brilliant and I am in awe of her patience
2: yeah, Jim, I completely agree. Paula was masterful. And and just for the audience, this is episode 153 and 154 of the Afford Anything podcast. They were published October 1st and October 5th, respectively. So if you haven't heard those episodes, I highly recommend you hit pause on this and go download them and listen. And yeah, it was really one of the most interesting and amazing things to happen in the Fi community, probably in the last couple of years, right, Jim?
1: Absolutely. And so, one of the things that, that I know Paula's gotten some negative feedback on, mostly positive, I gather, but some negative feedback, is that she didn't push back. She didn't challenge Susie enough. And I think she handled it exactly the way it should have been handled. I mean, when you bring a guest onto a podcast, presumably your audience knows what you think. What they don't know is what your guest thinks. And your job as an interviewer, and I think Paula did this masterfully, is to bring out the guests' ideas. I, I have to say, listening to Susie, that wasn't very hard to do. You just had to kind of stand out of the way. Hmm. But it is hard to resist the temptation to debate the issues. And I think Paula did exactly the right thing in in resisting that temptation.
0: Well, in my mind, I felt like she almost gave Susie just enough rope to kind of hang herself. I mean, her arguments, it was, it was actually painful to listen to. Brad, I know that you have... Um, kind of use like this Alan Greenspan example many times of just basically word vomit and you make everything sound so complicated. Everybody just kind of nods their head, but it's kind of just out of fatigue. And I just wanted to press pause over and over again because there were so many just logical fallacies going on that I was like, ah, we need to we need to slow this down.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that that struck me is this was somebody who was obviously talking about uh, in fire the subject that she really didn't understand. And yet she had no trouble pontificating about it. And I think that's what has a lot of the fire community uh, up in arms. And the sad, tragic thing is that from some of the comments that Susie made, when she talks about, you know, you should save your money and you should invest it, and compounding's powerful. I mean, there are a lot of commonalities there. And I think that if Susie understood what fire really is, That she'd probably be more comfortable about it. But to go off on it, not clearly not understanding uh, what it really means, I think that's a turnoff.
2: Yeah, Jim, I completely agree. It sounds to me, when I was really listening to it, that Susie was arguing for a FI lifestyle, at least in her own life, right? She said she was a waitress, I think, until 30. She saved, she cut expenses, she didn't come from money. She was exposed to the beauty of compounding. Like this is a five life, but on the other hand, she's now arguing basically that no one in this country can retire before 70 or 80, if ever, because one or two or even $3 million could never be enough. So it was someone who has just totally lost touch in my estimation with reality. How many people in America will ever have $3 million in assets.
0: And Brad, that was the part that was so brutal. Who does she think her audience is? I mean, you know, I know Susie. Everybody now knows that Susie has a private plane and a private island and a $30 million net worth. And it's quite obvious that Susie can't retire on $2 million. I mean, that is very, very apparent. But I got to wonder who she is actually speaking to. Because right now, the average American, and this was a study that was done by Bankrate over the last year or two. The average American has less than $4,000 in saving and 57% of U S adults have less than a thousand dollars to their names. That, I mean, this is what we're dealing with. And for her to suddenly say the bar is $10 million. Well, I, frankly, my friends, you could work till 90, you could work till 180. I hope those juicing supplements are working for you because you're never going to get to a number that Susie is telling you, you have to have just to have a bare bones existence.
1: Well, to pick up on that, and I I agree with what you both said, it really does sound like Susie embraces the FI lifestyle, but then she overlays it with, with this blanket of fear of, of all the terrible things that could happen. And that fear makes her recommend that people just keep driving away and burning up their life. And and yes, bad things can happen, but one of the worst things that can happen is you spend your life doing something that you don't really enjoy doing. Now Susie, evidently, is very fortunate in that she's found something that she enjoys doing, and she found it while she was still in her working career, and that's, and that's wonderful. But FI allows a lot of people to step back, get off the treadmill, and then figure out what they're going to do. So it was the tone of fear that bothered me the most.
2: Yeah, Jim, the fear aspect that struck me significantly. And then she started throwing in things about AI taking over and 25% unemployment. It was, it was just kind of odd to me. And, and listen, I get planning for the worst, I think buried in this. And if you look really, really hard, Susie maybe had some good points here. Things happen. If you're drawing down on your portfolio for 70 years, there's some uncertainty there. Like, I get at its heart. I really, really do understand what she was trying to say.
0: But Brad, um, don't things happen if you're working too? That was like, that was a part where applying all these anecdotal stories to individuals that have retired early and how it could go wrong. But working doesn't salvage all that. And for for a lot of them, if you go down in a duck boat, having a job doesn't help. You know, it's it was yeah. just- it was this like dichotomy of oh we're gonna throw anecdotes at the person that decides to save fifty percent of their income, knowing that a future where AI is gonna get rid of all the jobs, it seems like the person that's preparing for that now has an advantage. Oh, but the anecdotes because you're gonna have all of these disasters fall. You're not sad. You don't you don't get saved that just because you have a job. Stuff happens.
2: Yeah, I mean there's there's no question, and and yeah, I was getting to the Susie had maybe tiny little good points, but you can't live your life worried about every black swan event. I mean, clearly you have to do what you have to do to safeguard yourself. That means getting reasonable insurance. It means saving for a rainy day, right? The things that people in the fight community obviously do. But Jim, your point was brilliant that probably the biggest thing to worry about is losing decades of your life. That is the one non-renewable resource.
1: You know, the the other interesting point is there is probably not another group in America who thinks more about and is more skilled at preparing for the future and the storms that can come in the future than the FI community. I mean, that's part of the deal. We, you know, we plan to build up assets that can protect us against fate and allow us more choices. And I can't imagine that there is there's another group of people in the country who are more skilled at that task.
0: Yeah. Imagine that you're planning on traditional retirement and you don't even start thinking about what can go wrong until your late 50s when it's getting closer, like as opposed to an early retiree where everybody is telling them that it's not possible. Everyone is telling them that something horrible is going to go wrong. You're going to have to start thinking about these things. You're going to have to start stress testing your plan. In fact, you probably be, need to be a little bit more aggressive about stress testing it. I think that obviously in our community and the three of us here, we put a lot more emphasis on the FI. Then we do on the word retirement, which I think speaks to some of what Susie was talking about. But the fact of the matter is that this is not a community of people that are trying to be talked out of buying a pool that they can't afford. This is a community of people that are trying to figure out how to get from a 30% savings rate to a 40% savings rate while navigating current tax laws, while navigating all the complexities of healthcare. This is a community that is spending most of their free time studying this. And I don't think Susie, like, realizes that or comprehends that. I, I I asked myself, who is Susie? What is this content that she has? She's released these books. What would I learn from going and checking out Susie on the Oprah channel? What would be there? And I know that, you know, in 2003 to 2008, Susie was a big fan of homeownership. This being the one that you absolutely needed. This, this was the key to making it for financial security. 2003 to 2008, she was saying anything below a 7% interest rate is amazing. And don't worry about if it's a housing bubble because owning a home is a keystone to wealth. That is an actual quote from an article in Hopper magazine. You can, you can do the timeline there. In 2012 uh, Susie was talking about a prepaid debit card. She was trying to help poverty. She wanted to eliminate poverty. And so she said the best way to improve your credit, I'm going to come out with a, with a card that will be be a prepaid debit card. It'll only cost you $3 a month. And if you use this card religiously, you're going to actually be able to improve your FICO score. And there is video everywhere around the internet of her talking about how her approved prepaid debit card with only a $3 a month fee is going to allow you to suddenly rejuvenate your FICO score. This was everywhere. It's not debatable. She was, I I, I genuinely think if, if Susie left the personal finance world, it was largely on the backlash of this card after it became mainstream. And everybody kind of knew about how bad it was because it wasn't just $3 a month. There was an insane number of fees that were actually documented, fees to talk to a customer service agent, fees to get paper statements, fees to put money on the card, totaling if you were to actually use all these additional services like uh, close to 20 bucks a month. It's, It's absolutely insane. And then the most important pitch for this entire card, the reason that you should be paying these fees for this cards is the repairing of the FICO score. And of course, it had zero effect. There was there was language at the bottom to say possibly in the future, possibly the credit unions will consider this as a substitute for a credit score and will account for this in your number. No, 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 my friends doesn't work that way. They never did that. And it took literally years before they quietly disbanded the card long after people that bought into the Suzy brand were sharing this idea with their friends. This is a person who has significant blind spots, which is why I have trouble listening to her tell me what the future is going to be. There's just obvious things that that she hasn't seen. And in fact, times that she has set aside common sense to make a buck. So this
1: is interesting to me, Jonathan, because I have to be honest. What I know about Susie Orman, you could have put it in a thimble and yeah. had room left over for a cup of tea until the Paula Pant interview. By that, I mean, I'd seen her on TV a couple of times for, I don't know, maybe a total of 10, 15 minutes over my entire life. And, and the times I saw her, she was taking calls from listeners and telling them not to buy stupid shit. And I thought, well, that's good advice. And there's nothing that was compelling enough to make me want to continue to listen. So what you're saying is is new information to me. But it's also very interesting information because Susie makes a point in that interview of saying, if I remember correctly, she's worth $100 million. And I think it's stated in a way to conflate her net worth with her investing skill. And based on other comments she made in that interview, she clearly lacks investing skill. And based on what you're saying now, obviously, the money didn't come from Wise Investments. It came... Sounds like from scams. And even to the extent that it's not scams, it comes from having a very popular TV show that allows you to sell hundreds of thousands and, if she's to believe, millions of books. And all of that's fine. But I hope everybody who listened to that interview comes away understanding that that doesn't mean her investment advice is sound advice, because that's not how she accumulated the net worth she brags about.
0: One of the things that was so interesting to me was when she mentioned that municipal bonds uh, had suddenly disappeared and weren't profitable anymore. And so how could anybody have known that? And, and I remember as I was going through some of the articles that this was actually something that she advocated for. A lot of the financial advice that she mentioned on that episode that was what she said now in retrospect is bad advice and doesn't work is all being parroted from advice that she was giving you know, several, several years ago. So it seems like there is a, there's a pattern here of kind of looking back and saying, Wow, that didn't work. So it couldn't possibly work. So the only thing that does work is just to keep working as long as possible. And it, it struck me that it, it just seemed like that almost an entire conversation was coming from a state of fear. And I've kind of seen this pattern in the in the past. And the Phi community generally does not respond to it because we we approach life from a place of outrageous optimism, which some people say is to our fault. But I think it's optimism balanced by a firm grasp in reality. Well, in this case, people that are afraid, people that are constantly operating from a place of fear, it's very easy to sell products to solve that fear. It's very easy to sell books to solve that fear. And you can build a marketing empire around that. And, and I wonder, I just wonder if Susie, when she was kind of, when she left 2015 after the debacle with the prepaid cards, she walked away. The money matriarch of the world is no longer here. How will people possibly survive without my advice? And she comes back. And she finds that truly personal finance has been crowdsourced now. Best practices rise to the top. Jim, you're giving away all of the content that you have in your book. You're giving it away for free on your website, or you can get it from the library. And this is something that our community like strongly encourages. I wonder if there's an aspect of like, wow, this needs to end now. And you just to go for the straw man, which is this maybe 23 year old that has Three hundred thousand dollars saved up, and is contemplating early retirement, and saying that's a horrible idea. You should go back paycheck to paycheck and work for the next seventy years. Don't even think about it. And oh, by the way, buy my book.
1: Yeah, I, that may be the case, but but even short of that, you know, coming out and saying I hate it, I hate it, I hate it is. Let's be honest, that's great marketing, and it's one of the reasons that that uh, podcast interview is is blown up. And and if you believe in the adage that that all publicity is good publicity, then you know, Susie's done herself a solid.
0: Brad, I'm curious from your perspective on this. So obviously this was big for Susie. If you go to the iTunes Top 100 Business Podcast, her brand new podcast is now ranking in that top 100. She got a massive publicity spike from that. This was covered on MarketWatch. All the major publications covered this. Obviously the FI community has gotten a lot of attention over coming months. So to some degree, she was able to ride that. My question is, do you think this is net positive for the FI
2: community? I genuinely do it's in the balance, but I would say, yes, I think just to take a step back, clearly Susie is a master at self-promotion that I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Thing is just, it's perfect. It really was brilliant if that's what you're going for. So, I mean, like you said, there were articles all across the internet about this episode where Susie Orman went on to the afford anything podcast. Would that happen under normal terms? No, it wouldn't. And I think that's probably where one of the aspects where. This is getting the Phi community more publicity, right? And more eyeballs. So I think I would love to see Paula's download numbers for that particular episode and the one that followed because they had to be enormous. And I think realistically, especially Paula's follow-up episode, which showed just the intelligence and the intellectual capabilities and rigor of of the Phi community, people didn't respond with emotion. They really didn't, and they had every possible opportunity to do so. People responded with their intellect. And it was just, that maybe was the single best podcast episode I've ever heard the follow-up episode. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's, what's so beautiful about the five community. So you asked me, is this a net positive? I think it is because I think we had a chance to take a step back and say, okay, here's someone coming in who obviously doesn't agree with us. Well, I think a lot of her comments showed she was kind of out in left field here, but again, she had some reasonable points about a 50 to 80 year period of drawing down about calamities that can befall you, et cetera. Like people need to think about this. And anytime we look at our own kind of sacred cows and say, all right, does this pass the smell test? And if you come out on the other side saying, yes, it does. Yes. We're safeguarded. Yes. We're thinking about this. Then I think that's a win.
0: So circling back, Jim, to this idea of how much money do you actually need to retire? I think that's one of the things that she was very vague about. It was, it was something like, well, if you're an early retiree, you need uh, $10 million. But if you are a gas line worker, then you only need $2 million. I mean, she kind of moved the target a couple of times. But one of the things that, that I heard is it will never be enough. A- and I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts? How much money does one need to retire?
1: First of all, it, it was absolutely striking to me the amounts of money she was throwing around uh, that you needed for retiring. It was, it ranged from, what I heard, $10 million up to $100 million. And if that's truly the benchmark, only a tiny fraction of people in the world are ever going to have that kind of money to retire. But I think what Susie is missing is that whether or not you have enough to retire, there's there's two sides of that equation. One is how much money you have. The other is how much money you need or you're spending. Now, Susie is looking at the world from Susie's perspective. And if I heard her correctly, Susie sold three, four, five houses to buy a private island. She's got a private jet. Well, with the lifestyle Susie has trapped herself in, yeah, she's probably going to need $50 or $100 million. But you don't have to trap yourself in that kind of a lifestyle. So it's really a function of how much do you actually need? I tell the story um, on my blog, and and I think I told it in my book too, about my friend Ken. And this is a story that goes back to 1993. Ken and I were having lunch just before Christmas, and Ken was in the financial business, so that's a business that pays well. and And he had just gotten his annual bonus, and it was eight hundred thousand dollars. And what we talked about over lunch was how you can't live on just $800,000 a year. Now, to most people listening, that's going to sound absurd. But sitting across uh, the lunch table with Ken as he went through his expenses, kind of like Susie did, the multiple houses, the private education for for the children, the trips, the fancy cars, and on and on, he was right. $800,000 was not enough to support the lifestyle that he'd constructed. Now, let's say Ken wanted to retire. I don't know how much he made beyond the bonus, but let's just say it was a million dollars. Well, if we use the 4% rule, we know that you multiply that by 25. So Ken would need $25 million to retire at his current lifestyle. I'm retired. I don't have $25 million. Brad's retired. I, I don't think too many people in the FI community have that kind of money, but we don't have that kind of lifestyle either. I think Ken was a happy enough guy, but I've known people who've never made more than $40,000 a year who have achieved FI at a standard of living that, that they're comfortable with and that they enjoy and that, that make them happy. And there's all kinds of psychological research about what makes people happy and money's a small part of it. And the truth is that while it's a part of it, it doesn't take that much money.
0: What's crazy is Susie actually said that in the episode, but didn't connect the logic. I mean, I'm just thinking when she's talking about Uh, What she did, what she learned all those years ago, she says, I did all the retirement planning for the Pacific Gas and Electric, which is a utility company for Northern California. 7,000 people would retire and they'd see me. I did all the retirement planning most of those years for them. What was fascinating is that people who made 50 or $60,000 a year who were the line workers, the gas meter readers, all of that, they had more than enough money to retire versus the executives that had millions in their 401k was going to get a pension of $13,000 a month and blah, blah, blah. And what I learned from all of that is that when you make a lot of money, the more money usually you make, the more money you spend. You don't save it. You don't invest it. You're not wise with it. So when you don't make a lot of money, normally you don't spend like you have a lot of money because you don't. So you tend to stay out of credit card debt. So like, there's a cognitive fallacy going on here. This is just obvious. What if you could take the mindset of the line worker and apply it to an above median income salary? it it just it just works. But it doesn't sound like she's willing to extend that logic to someone that's pursuing financial independence. Well, it even works for the line
1: worker. As I said, I've known people who never made, I don't know what a line worker makes, but you know thirty, forty, fifty thousand. I've known people who've never made more than forty thousand in their life who achieved FI. I mean, the math works if you if you understand the balance between what you need, what you spend, and what you have and i think your your point's well taken and it brings me back to what i said earlier i think susie fundamentally doesn't understand what the fire movement is all about and i think that's one of the reasons that what she says is so contradictory comes across as so contradictory and so confusing now whether she just doesn't understand it because she hasn't been willing to look into it Or whether she decided strategically that it would get a lot more play if she said, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And, of course, it has. I have no way of knowing that. But clearly, either by design or by lack of effort, she has no idea what the FIRE movement's really all about.
2: Jim, do you think any of the confusion comes from the acronym itself, the FIRE? Right? Like, we focus on FI here at Choose FI the financial independence aspect but clearly the retire early has some has some baggage
1: absolutely and and you know the i have a love hate relationship with the fire acronym i love it because it's brilliant in itself it's you know fire is it's a cool concept as you guys do, you came up with a wonderful line uh, that you use at the end, I think at the end of all of your podcasts, the fire is spreading. For that reason just,
0: alone, I hope it doesn't go away. I would hate to have to come up with a different ending to our show.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and I've actually spent some time trying to come up with a different, equally clever acronym that that would be, man, I failed. Yeah. But to go back to Brad's point, I think that word retire, you know, it's it's given rise to, I think, Mr. Money Mustache first came up with the idea of the internet retirement police. And it's given rise to a lot of confusion and, frankly, a lot of hostility towards this whole movement when when people say, yeah, you know, I've, I've achieved FI, and then the next part of it is I've retired early, and the next part of it is I've gone on to do something else that I'm really enjoying, and oh, that happens to make money. And, well, now you're a fraud because you're not really retired. You know, I've, if you look at the comments of any of the public interviews that uh, Money Mustache has done, you see it filled with that kind of stuff. Well, you've got a blog and that's making me, you're not really retired. But I don't think retiring was is really the point. It was, certainly was never my objective. You know, I always enjoyed my career. It was being financially independent just meant I could step away from work whenever I wanted to and for as long as I wanted to, and I could go do something else if I wanted to. But there are very few people, I think, in this community who are smart enough, driven enough, ambitious enough, adventurous enough to achieve FI who are just going to stop and do nothing. There are some. A couple of years ago in Guatemala, I uh, ran into a an Aussie who was riding his motorcycle around the world. He was about a year and a half into a three-year trip around the world. And he was fully retired. I want to say he was in his mid-40s, maybe pushing 50. You know, he was fully retired. He wasn't doing anything to earn income. And when he was done with the motorcycle trip, uh, which, by the way, he is now finished, uh, he sold the motorcycle and he bought a boat and he's sailing around the world. So there are people. Yeah, it is awesome. But it's his choice. And that's my point, is that when you're FI, and and I've I've actually had conversations with people who've achieved the FI number, that is 25% of what they spend, and now they're financially independent. And sometimes they say, so I have to quit my job. No, no. If you're enjoying your job, keep doing your job. Being FI just means you can do whatever you want to do. And if you're an Aussie motorcyclist who wants to then sail around the world and not have any more income, then do that. If you're Mr. Money Mustache and you want to build house, renovate houses and, and build new things and create a blog and that happens to make money, then do that. But I think going back to Susie, most people who hit FI wind up doing things that are productive. They're just things that give them passion and satisfaction, which is also, by the way, what she was recommending. She was saying, go out and find a job that gives you passion and satisfaction. Well, that can be tough to do the first time around when you just need the money to pay the bills. It's a lot easier to do once you get to FI or even close to it, once you have what I call FU money, it's a lot easier to make that transition and look for the thing that you really really love to do. That's another reason I think that if Susie really understood FI, then other than for promotional reasons, she wouldn't be saying she hated it.
2: Yeah, Jim, I agree completely. It, FI is about having power and autonomy and freedom over your own life that you otherwise wouldn't. This is not about retiring early. And I, and if Susie hasn't researched FIRE or FI, then, then I get it, right? If she's picturing 30-year-olds who think that they can go gallivanting across the world and not get bored. I think that was her, that was her statement, which is, what are you going to do with your life? You'll get bored if you retire at 30. And if she hasn't looked into the type of people that this attracts, then I can vaguely understand where she's coming from, right? 60 to 70 extra years, just traveling around the world that likely will get tiring, right? We've seen our our good friend, Brandon from the mad scientist. Brandon and Jill thought that they were going to travel around the world for a significant amount of time, if not indefinitely. And what they figured out after trying that and had, that's the beautiful thing here is they had the freedom and the space to try this. They figured out that wasn't what they wanted out of their lives. They wanted to go back to their lives in Edinburgh and have a routine, have friends that they connected with, have Jill's family nearby have work for Jill and working out for Brandon and working on the podcast and the the website, right? That's what they decided. Whereas your friend, Jim, who's the Aussie who's driving around motorcycle around the world and now sailing, like that's really cool. And that's what that individual decided was the plan, right? So the beautiful part of this is we get to decide what to do with our time, right? Our precious years on this planet. So to me, that is the beauty of that.
1: You know, Brad, that's it exactly is is F.I. gives you the freedom to create the life that is best for you. And I think one of the objections I had with Susie is she has this one straightjacketed vision of how everybody should live because it's the way she lived. And, you know, it's maximizing a lifestyle and working your tail off. Hopefully it's something you love, but maybe not to be able to afford it. The world is is a huge thing. I mean, you're right about Brandon and Jill. You know, they, FI allowed them to try, to try travel and it didn't suit their needs. And now they found a different way to live that does. At the same time, uh, Christie and Bryce from Millennial Revolution have been traveling around the world for a couple of years now. And when I talk to them, they, they're having a ball and they're having, there's no indication that they're near being sick of it. And they are still doing creative and productive things on the road. Winnie and Jeremy, Gold Curry Cracker, still traveling around the world, still doing cool, creative, profitable things as they travel around the world. So being FI just makes more options available to you and you get to choose.
0: I felt like with Susie, a lot of this was because insurance, work to your 70 because insurance, because disability insurance, because long term care insurance, because flood insurance. Jim, can you protect every aspect of your life by working till 70?
1: <laughs> no, you can't. In fact, in you you mentioned uh, the follow-up podcast that Paula did with the FI community and and I think it was Brad who said it was one of the best he's ever heard or maybe the best ever. And and I agree with that. It's certainly up in the top of them. And one of the participants in that told the story of his father, I think, who basically lived his life without hearing Susie, evidently, but based on the way Susie describes. And in his, sometime in his 70s, something terrible did happen to him. And it destroyed his health and destroyed their, their wealth. And, and, you know, lots of bad things happen. Let's take it to the extreme. So imagine for a second that you're Jewish and you're in Germany in the 1930s. Maybe you've Your family's been there for generations, and you've done well. You're prosperous. You've done well for generations. And then things start to go downhill, and more restrictions are put on you. And then suddenly, some of your property gets confiscated, and then more. Maybe if you're one of the lucky ones, you escape as a refugee with the clothes on on your back. Now, talk about losing everything. What's striking, World War II ends. Those people who survive go on. Now, what do they teach their children? Do they teach their children don't bother because it can all be taken away from you in the most brutal of fashions? No, they teach their children the value of hard work, the value of education, the value of saving, the value of investing, all of those same things that situationally turned out badly for them. Why do they do that? Because they know... That while the most horrible things can and sometimes do happen in life, by and large, they don't. And by and large, even if they do, you will be better off by being thrifty, by being educated, by working hard, by investing.
2: Yeah. And Jim, my uh, mother's side of the family is actually Jewish. And and I can certainly vouch that those lessons, those positive lessons have been passed down through the generations. So yeah, that was an especially impactful story for me personally. So thank you for bringing that up. And I kind of wanted to pivot here back to the episode. One thing that jumped out to me, especially with you, Jim, you're the author of The Simple Path to Wealth. And I think many people in our phi community follow the advice that, that you laid down with low cost index fund investing, controlling fees, and that being the most important path to long term wealth. But Susie was talking about her investing advice. Right. And I think she mentioned municipal bonds and some kind of selling Tesla stock. And I, I just love your thoughts on where she was coming from.
1: Well, it was sometimes it was kind of hard to tell where she was coming from because she was she jumped around quite a bit and she'd throw out a line and then move on to something else but one of the things that that you just mentioned that also struck me was tesla stock and as i recall at, at one point she indicated that she had owned tesla stock and she had sold it and the reason she had sold it is she she's seen elon musk take a puff of a joint on on video that really rocked me back in in my seat on a couple of different levels so level number one for anybody who's familiar with my stock series or my book, is I am absolutely convinced, and the research backs me up, that trying to pick individual stocks is a loser's game. But if you're going to do it, I don't think I have ever heard a worse reason to sell a stock than the one Susie threw out, which is basically, I saw the CEO do something I didn't like, or that maybe morally offended or whatever it was. So if you look at Tesla stock, you can say, OK, if you're a bear on Tesla stock, you're probably looking at it and saying, you know, you look at this company and you look at the amount of money they're losing and the amount of money they need is in, uh, from investors to keep going. And you look at basic business metrics and none of it makes sense. If you're a bull on Tesla stock, you're looking at it and saying Tesla is breaking new ground. They're going to reshape the economy going forward, not just with electric cars, which are the future but even more importantly, energy storage and the battery technology that that they're creating. And and they're gonna be like Amazon was, you know, and Amazon of course was famous for, Jeff Bezos was famous for saying he didn't care about profits. And that drove the basic business people, analysts nuts and the futurist people loved it. And, And Amazon of course has turned out to be a great investment, but a lot of companies that had that same philosophy back in the day, let's be clear, crashed and burned which is one of the reasons I don't think you could pick individual stocks but if you're going to own Tesla you can make an argument to own it and you can make an argument to short it but to own it and sell it just because the CEO does one thing that that uh, that offended you just makes no sense to me at all and it and it shows a lack of investing savvy and frankly a lack of investing
0: discipline yeah, I think you make some great points. So, so Jim, uh, are you going to be picking up uh, Susie's latest book? Uh, no, I don't
1: think so. And <laughs> I haven't, uh, as I indicated before, I really don't know about, much about Susie. And I guess she's written several books. And listening to the interview, there's nothing that that makes me want to pick one up. I have to say, I, I do envy her the uh, 800,000 copies that she indicated she sold of one of her books. And in fact, I I was teasing my, my agent shortly thereafter, and I asked her, I said, hey, how come my book hasn't sold 800,000 copies? My book has sold 50,000 copies, which until I heard Susie, I thought was pretty good. And and when I asked my agent that, she said, well, Jim, you don't have a TV show.
0: <laughs> yeah, Jim, <laughs> so that's, that's something well that we taken. need to start working on. <laughs> All right, J.L. Collins, author of The Simple Path to Wealth. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show today.
1: Hey, it was fun. Thank you for inviting me.
0: All right, my friends. Well, unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And there's three books that we offer. One of them is not Susie Orman's. I'm sorry. Uh, but we offer JL Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. The second book is Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And the third book is Vincent Puglisi's Freelance to Freedom. If you want to enter the drawing to win one of those books, all you need to do is just go to choosify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there, and leave us a short written review on either iTunes or Stitcher, and then send us an email to feedback at letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under We announce the winners every week on the Friday Roundup, and we give away one book for every five written reviews that we get. Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today, and the winner is Tina. And Tina says, loving it, just what I was looking for. I love this podcast. I am self-taught about my finances, but what I was missing is how to apply my knowledge in a real-life setting, and this podcast and community has given me that. Great job, guys. Please keep up the great work. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.
1: You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.
0: And for those of you that had made a note or meant to go back and take a note about finding out more about this Salesforce career track, again, the link to get all that information is just com slash career. That's choosify.com slash career.